Let's join together once again for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for truth. Understanding that some of the same words that we've been singing and meditating on and reading are the words that were used by a crowd a long time ago. But they were confused. They didn't know what they were doing in some cases. What we do, thank you for truth. And thank you that when we're singing praises to you, we understand that it is to you the only one who's worthy of receiving worship and praise. And so we give you thanks. And we do it with sincerity. We thank you so much, even at this moment, that we're able to see more of your truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're the triumphantly entering the, uh, the city of Jerusalem in our minds. If you'll join with me in doing that in your imagination, here we are. There's a huge crowd. The crowd's ahead of Jesus. The crowd's behind Jesus. There are a lot of questions that are being asked. It's up to us to make sure that we don't make some of the same mistakes that they made then. The biggest mistakes were mistakes in mistaken identity. And so what I'd like to do is to consider, first of all, three cases of mistaken identity, two by way of illustration and one of the actual passage that we have before us this morning. Questions abounded. Who is this? Is Jesus just a prophet? Is Jesus something more than that? Is Jesus, well, what exactly is he? That was the question of that day, and it still is the question today that we can't afford to get the wrong answer to. Three cases of mistaken identity. Here's the first one. The early 1930s, America's most wanted fugitive was undoubtedly John Dillinger, who robbed over two dozen banks. Now, that was a problem, obviously, for the banks. It was a problem for the law enforcement officials, but it was also a problem for a 25-year-old gentleman by the name of Ralph Alsman, a law-abiding citizen from Brookville, Indiana, who was practically John Dillinger's identical twin. You can see on the screen that there is a lot of similarity between the two individuals, but in reality, at the time, they say that it was even greater. And more than we see here, because... Both of them had a mole next to one eye and a scar on the left wrist. And compounded was the fact that Brookville, where Alsman lived, was only 54 miles from Dillinger's hometown of Mooresville in Indiana. So Alsman was easily mistaken for the infamous outlaw. In fact, he was mistaken so many times that he was arrested 17 times. Now, that could get old, I would think, after a little while, but it actually gets even worse than that. Even when he left his home state, he was still arrested in such cities as Detroit and Minneapolis. He could even get farther away from home. Although he was always released, he often had to undergo stressful interrogation sessions to convince authorities he wasn't Dillinger. Worst of all, he was shot 11 times for being John Dillinger. And I checked that on a number of sources. He became justifiably paranoid that a law enforcement officer would kill him before he had the chance to prove his real identity. Now you're saying, oh, now I know why he's telling this story on Palm Sunday. Now I understand what's going on here. How he was almost paranoid, it says, that a law enforcement officer would kill him before he had the chance to prove his real identity. Uh, That kind of happened, didn't it, in our scripture this morning? 
but Jesus, they're asking, who is this? And they misidentify him as a prophet, or they misidentify him later as something else. Um, and someone could get paranoid if someone were in a situation where nobody really knows, or at least not many people know who he is. Well, that's one illustration of many where a person was mistreated because someone failed to recognize who he really was. It was cause of mistaken identity. Here's mistaken identity number two. When Queen Victoria lived at Balmoral Castle, she sometimes enjoyed a walk in the district incognito. She would get rid of all of the things that would mark her as a queen, and she would try to fit in as a normal person might. On one occasion, she slipped out by a side gate. She was only accompanied by one of her faithful servants, a man by the name of John Brown. John Brown would not walk with her, but well behind her, but he was there to protect her if she needed some protection. So on this one occasion along the road, she came on a flock of sheep being driven by a boy who shouted, Get out of the way, stupid old woman! The queen smiled to herself. That's a good thing, speaks well of her. But she said nothing. But when the servant came along, John Brown, he informed the boy that he had just insulted the queen. And here was the boy's response. Well, she should dress like a queen. Mistaken identity number three. There were those of us here on this planet who did not recognize God himself because he came in humble form. He was disguised royalty. The boy thought he would be the one who could decide what the queen should look like, and she didn't measure up to his expectation. He would determine the basis on which he would accept her, but she fell short. God was with us. We didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his very own. We didn't even receive him because we... Back then, the people and people still today didn't realize truly that Jesus was God himself. Now, you may say this, how could they have received him any better than they did? How could they have received him any better? Because as Mike read for us just a few moments ago in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Did you catch that? Most of the crowd, this was a huge crowd, most of them spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. This was all to honor the Lord Jesus and the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him. Understand, Jesus was in the middle of this parade. There were people ahead, people behind, people were going with him, people met them on the way, and people were following them. This was a very, very big deal. And the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That has messianic implications, as we saw not too long ago. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that sounds great. How could they have received him any better than that? If Jerusalem had skyscrapers, this might have been a ticker tape parade. The problem was they didn't recognize the real Jesus. They recognized someone else. I have that problem from time to time. People think that I'm Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. But, okay, never mind. <laughs> That's, they failed to recognize who Jesus was because he didn't meet their expectations. 
He didn't meet the expectations that they had because they had in their mind who it was that was going to be coming, who it was that was going to help them, who it was that was going to save them. And it wasn't Jesus as it turned out. Less than a week later, many of these same cheerleaders were demanding that Jesus be killed by the most horrible and cruel method of execution known to mankind, a Roman crucifixion. In less than a week's time, they completely turned on the Lord Jesus. Instead of chanting Hosanna, they were screaming, crucify him. Jesus' stock had risen and fallen faster than the stock market crash in 1929. We call them a very fickle crowd, and they represent people just like us. They represent us as well. Where did Jesus go wrong? What had he done to turn the crowd against him? Jesus obviously hadn't done anything wrong, and Jesus didn't turn the crowd against him. He hadn't done anything. The crowds of people were looking for someone else, and for a while, they thought they had him. But when they found out they didn't, they were disappointed, they were disillusioned, they were bitter, they didn't get what they wanted. So they turned on him, the one who failed to meet their premature expectations. And there he was, right in front of them, but he turned out to be less than what they wanted. What did they expect to find in Jesus? I'm going to suggest four things. They expected to find a champion. They expected to find a crusader, someone who could fight their battles for them. They wanted to be rid of the Roman Empire and Roman rule. They wanted to be independent. They had tasted that independence before. They wanted it back again. They wanted religious freedom. They wanted political freedom. They wanted someone to come and deliver them. What they were looking for was another Maccabee. Any historians among us? Does that ring a bell? They wanted another Maccabee. How many of you understand what that means? It's a much smarter group in the first service, I have to point out. Um, don't quote me on that one. I don't want that to get around. But, yeah, they were looking for another Maccabee. The Maccabees were a line of Jewish rulers. The Maccabee family led the Jews in a great revolt against the Syrians, roughly 168, 167 B.C. that lasted for about 24 years. We're talking about the time between the Testaments, talking about that 400-year period when nothing is recorded in the Scriptures, but a whole lot was happening in history. In fact, it's a very confusing time as you're reading what happens after Alexander the Great has passed on and his kingdom is divided up and the warfare that results from that and the attempts that are being made on many occasions to try to bring about a Hellenization or, or making Greek-speaking and all the, uh, the Greek things virtues at that particular time. So the Maccabees were on the scene at that particular time. The hated Syrian king, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and I have a picture up here you probably can't see very well. It's just on a coin, but it's to show we're talking about something before Christ. We're talking about antiquity. We're talking about one of those individuals, though, who was a marked man in history, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. His uh, enemies would change his name. It wasn't Amphiphanes. It was Empimenes. One letter change, and the letter change meant the madman. Uh, and they, they didn't regard him very highly. Most people did not because he really was a madman. He was attempting to stamp out the religion of the Jews and to Hellenize or make Greek worshipers out of the Jews. That was a tough order, but he was determined he was going to try to do it. 
but it caused a revolt ultimately against him and what he was trying to do. This is the same man who went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and called for the continuation of the sacrifice of pigs on the altar of the temple. He's the one who erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. He's the one who tried to destroy the Pentateuch, remove every last copy of the Pentateuch. And then along came the family of Maccabee, Mattathias Maccabee, who's now pictured on a coin, uh, led five sons in their resistance. They fled, first of all, to the hills, and later under, here's the another family member, Judas Maccabee. Jewish people won a number of significant victories against the Syrians. They were then able even to rule themselves again and to establish some of their own religion for a while until the Romans again took, or not again, but the Romans took control in 63 B.C. So there was a whole lot that was going in the 400 years between the Testaments. A whole lot of warfare and changing from one particular dynasty to another. The Maccabees decided they were going to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes IV and some of the people that came along after him as well. became known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt was another David and Goliath saga in the history of the nation of Israel. The nation had been delivered from a foreign conqueror. The Jewish Feast of Hanukkah commemorates some of the significant happenings of this time. Something very interesting, as history wore on at that particular time, and as Mattathias and Judas were passing off the scene, and Jonathan Maccabee also passed along the scene, there was another Maccabee by the name of Simon, who was there at a very strategic moment toward the end of the time when they were going to gain some of their freedom back again. Palm branches were waved during his triumphal entry, this is Simon Maccabee, after one important victory. And this, again, was not terribly long before the time of the Lord Jesus. And the people of Israel were used to this kind of celebration. They were used to this kind of thing, the palm branches acknowledging the fact that here was a conqueror, a deliverer, one who rid them of the hated enemies at that particular time. So you can see that what they are looking for is a repeat of the same kind of a thing. They're looking for a champion. They're looking for that conqueror who would come and help them out once again. And that's what they saw in Jesus, crusader. He's going to drive out the oppressors. There were zealots who were there who would join in an instant, and there were people who were afraid who would come and join. They just needed somebody to rally them. They needed that crusader. They thought that was Jesus. If you look at verse 9 in Matthew chapter 21, you'll see that word Hosanna. That word Hosanna that means save now or oh save. Originally it was a prayer or a cry for help. But as time went on, it was an expression of adoration as well. Some commentators emphasize that the use of the word Hosanna is with reference to a political deliverance from Rome. Save now, but not from sin, from the Romans. The ultimate enemy is sin. We need to be delivered from that. They weren't so much concerned about that. They weren't concerned about the one who came to give his life to save us from our sin. They were concerned about the one who would deliver them from the Romans. Possibility that a new deliverer was here caused at least some of the people, and I believe most of the people, to be excited in the crowd. The day had arrived. It was here. 
And now something great was about to happen. Something great was about to happen until they saw somebody led to trial. They saw somebody who was very, very, in their minds, as weak as they were as the week wore on. And so they turned. Jewish people had seen in the Old Testament prophecies two pictures of the coming Messiah. They had seen him pictured as the conqueror, the one who would rule on the throne of David, the king who would subject everything to himself. But there was another picture that was either fuzzy to them or they couldn't see it at all, the suffering servant, the one who would give his life for his people, not to save them politically, but to save them from their sins. The two pictures of Jesus were viewed as simultaneous prophecies, like two mountain peaks in the distance that appeared to be right next to each other. I hope that you're able to to picture what's going on. Take an Old Testament believer, just pick on Isaiah for, for an example. Looking off into the distance and seeing this mountain peak and seeing this mountain peak, but from a distance they look like they're right next to each other. And they fail to see this distance that comes between. And so as we're, as we're examining that, two pictures of Jesus, like these two mountain peaks, right next to each other, at least in one view. In reality, though, there's a great distance between these two mountain peaks. There's a valley, an expanse of time in Jesus' case. A valley of at least 2,000 years and counting between Jesus first coming to die and then coming to reign as king. The people saw only the peaks and nothing between, and they didn't even really see the peak of suffering, some of them at all, and some in a very fuzzy way. So we have a situation here where the people are expecting something, and they think that they've got scriptural warrant to do that, and that adds to their disappointment when it doesn't happen the way they wanted to. Let me sample one verse from each of the four Gospels and see what's going on here, because Jesus was not coming to be a political crusader, but the people thought He was. Matthew 21, verse 9 again. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Can't get any higher than how they wanted to praise him. Mark chapter 11, verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This was the throne of David, the kingly line. Somebody was coming who would deliver just like David had. Luke 19.38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was a huge event that was happening. And in John chapter 12, verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees. And uh, incidentally, John is the only one who mentions that the trees were palm trees. He took, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Some of the people hadn't even seen the first mountain peak. They didn't see that Jesus had come to die. But of course, he had. They didn't see a need to repent of their sins. They just saw a need to be rid of their enemies. Interesting, John chapter 12, verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have seen from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
this Messiah figure, this person that is coming, he's going to remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're talking about the cross there. How can you say there's going to be a cross thing here because he's got to live forever, there's not going to be any death? And then the question that keeps coming up, who is this Son of Man? Who is this particular individual? Two disciples on the road to Emmaus expressed their disappointment in Jesus' apparent failure. Do you remember those, the the two on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Here's what they said to Jesus as they were walking along. Jesus came up and joined them, and they were talking together, and they wondered why it was Jesus didn't know what was going on. He was asking, what's all the hubbub about? And they, they basically said, did you just land from Mars or something? Because everybody knows what's going on here. But here's what they said to him. But we had hoped, after they talked about this person, Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. We hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem us, who was going to deliver us. But it's sure not looking very good right now because he's dead and time keeps passing by. And those were people who were among the disciples, not the apostles, but the disciples. A few verses later, Jesus said this to these same two individuals on that walk to Emmaus. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? For these two and others who are saying, but I thought that the Messiah was going to be here forever. So how about him getting lifted up? That doesn't make any sense. How can there be a death? How can there be a death on the cross? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself because they're all there they were there then and they're still there obviously what did the people expect to find a champion a crusader and now here is somebody coming and it appears as if he's going to die and ultimately he did die and left a lot of people very very discouraged and depressed what else did they come to expect they came to expect a common prophet as well and when I speak in terms of a common prophet, I don't mean just a, an ordinary prophet because they expected that Jesus was even a great one among the prophets. But I'm talking about a common prophet that if you're the son of God, to be called a common prophet is no real kind of praise for you. So in Matthew chapter 21, once again, when we're looking at verses 10 and 11, those verses that are there, I always find this humorous, and and I've said this before on a couple of occasions. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, and remember what had taken place. There's this huge parade. People are shouting and clamoring, and there's a frenzy that goes on. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. The whole city was. People that had come from Bethany and other places, but the whole city was stirred up saying, By the way, who is this? Who is this? You know, let's join the parade. Let's join the party. Everybody's there. Um, Who is this? And the answer came back. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Yes, it's true to say he was a prophet, but it's a wrong answer if you stop there. And that's what they did. They stopped there. This is a prophet. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's a prophet. Pretty well known. The word about him has gotten around and he's said some things. He's, he's, He's well known to the people. Look at verse 46 in that same chapter, Matthew 21, 
verse 46. Jesus had been telling some parables that didn't present the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders in a very favorable light. In fact, it was very insulting to them. So in verse 46, well, verse 45, let's pick up. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They thought that he was a prophet. Again, a common prophet. That was an expectation. Luke chapter 24, back on the the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, these two individuals, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So they even acknowledged he was mighty as a prophet. People even consider Jesus to be a great prophet in Luke 7, 16. Fear sees them all. This is before the triumphal entry, obviously. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Again, usually it would be considered to be a great honor to be called a prophet, but not if one were God himself. Not if God himself were there and they were saying, he's a prophet, he's a great prophet. They could say that of him too, that he's a teacher, he's a great teacher, he's an example, the best example ever. All of that stops short of describing who he is if he is God himself, and he is. It's a mistake to say Jesus was merely a prophet. John the Baptist was a prophet. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all those guys were prophets. Other people had been prophets, but in a very small way, it would be like saying that President Obama is a political figure. He's the president of the greatest nation on the planet. To say he's a political figure, that would be stopping short of saying that uh, of, of who he really is as president of the United States. But even the office of president is not as high above the other politicians as the Messiah was beyond all earthly prophets. So they got it wrong there. They had a third expectation of what Jesus was, and this was that he was a curiosity. He was a wonder to them. Jesus was expected to be an entertainer, a curiosity, a miracle worker, a faith healer. He was welcomed as such. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Please, if you will, John chapter 12, and I'll always say turn with me. For those of you that I say follow along, whatever device you have, that's fine. But um, however you get to John 12, I'll meet you there in just a moment. John chapter 12, verse 9. Some very interesting things happening because if you know your, your scriptures, you know John chapter 12, you know your numbers, John 12 comes after 11, but if you know 11 is the raising of Lazarus, a very significant event. When we get to verse 9 in chapter 12, it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. 
reason being a lot of people were being attracted to Jesus and believing in him as a result of that. And so we have a curiosity now. People are coming to see this one who raised somebody from the dead, and they could also see the one who was raised from the dead, the one that everybody was talking about. So let's go see this. If they're charging tickets, I'm willing to pay because I want to see somebody that was dead and was raised from the dead, and I want to see the man who did it. So they're looking for a curiosity. John chapter 12, look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They didn't keep quiet about it. They were telling everybody they could. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. I want to go see the guy that did this. This is very entertaining. How many people could say that they saw somebody who was dead, who was alive, and then they saw the one who brought him back from the dead? So we have a a situation where this continues to go on. In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, it says, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works that they had seen. John twelve thirty seven describes the tragic results of viewing Jesus as Mandrake the magician, as some of them did. Here's what it says in John twelve thirty seven: Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Can you imagine that? The crowds were there. They acknowledged that something great had happened. They still did not believe in him. Three cases of mistaken identity so far. They're seeing this conqueror, crusader, common prophet, now curiosity. A lot of motives encouraging the multitude of people in that first Palm Sunday. But there were others in that mixed-up crowd who came to see the Christ, the Son of God. They understood what was going on. They placed their faith and trust in him. We're aware the crowds had come to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate Passover. But amongst that crowd, there were Galileans. The Galileans were far more receptive to truth than those under the guidance of the leaders in Jerusalem. And those Galileans no doubt included some of those formerly blind and lame and deaf and dumb, leprous, lonely, infirm, the former spiritually bankrupt individuals that Jesus had touched in his ministry. And some of them knew that Jesus was more than just one of those other three identities. Even from among those who expected Christ to be a champion, someone beyond that to believe in him and to repent of their sins and to defeat the ultimate enemy, not Rome, but sin. Even from among those who expected Christ to be a champion, some went beyond that to believe in him and to repent of their sins. Even from among those who came to see miracles, some believed in Christ. I just kind of glossed over this in John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So instead of trying to deal with truth as truth, 
let's destroy the evidence and kill the people involved. That was their strategy. Even from among those who saw Jesus as a great prophet and teacher, some went beyond that and received him as Savior and Lord. Now let's apply some of these happenings to us here today. Have any of us been caught up in the excitement of a particular moment? Have we joined in a celebration of praise to Jesus, but never made an individual decision for Christ? Have we joined a family celebration because our family's been very religious, our family believes some important things, and so therefore by osmosis I kind of just joined in with it. And to this day, if you were to ask me, am I a Christian, I would probably tell you yes. And I could get involved in some celebrations. I enjoy when Christmas comes and I enjoy Easter. But is that mob mentality even amongst the family or amongst the church that you've come to? And the people are expecting you to act the same way that they do about these things. Is it possible that there are some among us who have never personally, individually said, I need the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from my sin? I'm not just joining in with what everybody else is. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. And so I'm in Rome here, so I'll do what, what's expected of me. I'll do what's been conformity to my family over the years. We've got to be very, very careful that we ourselves individually have identified who Jesus is. He's God himself, the Savior of sins. My concern over any crowd of professing believers, and we certainly see this on Palm Sunday when we go back to the triumphal entry, it's the sobering caution of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then it goes into some things. There are some people who did some pretty significant things in the name of the Lord Jesus. But if they're not doing the will of God, and the will of God is that we receive his son, the Lord Jesus, as Savior, if we're not doing that, then he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Many in that first Palm Sunday crowd were vocal, but they weren't true believers. Many of them were loud, but they weren't true believers. Many of them fit in very well with the religious crowd, but they weren't believers in Christ. You've heard me say this before, but the next to the last thing in the world I want to do is to cause a genuine believer in Jesus Christ to doubt his salvation. I don't think it's a good thing for people to be doubting their salvation, but we're told in the scriptures, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So the next to the last thing in the world I ever want to do is to cause a genuine believer to doubt his salvation. But the last thing in the world I want to do is to have someone mistakenly identify himself as a Christian when in reality he is not or she is not. There can be nothing worse than being lulled into a false security of thinking one is saved if he's never really meant business with the real Jesus Christ. There are some possible areas of confusion. Do you realize that when people are talking about receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and they ask you to pray a certain prayer and then they say, raise your hand if you've received Christ, do you realize raising a hand never saved anybody? You understand that, I hope. And you understand that walking down an aisle, even if somebody says, walk down the aisle, indicate that you've received Christ. Walking down an aisle in and of itself never saved anyone anyone at all. 
Repeating the right words after someone else never saved anyone. Shouting hosannas, singing praises never saved anyone. Recognizing that Jesus is a king, recognizing he's a great teacher, recognizing that he's a miracle worker or a prophet never saved anyone either. What saves is genuine faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing him and personally receiving him into our lives as Savior, as substitute, as Lord. The one who acknowledges that he or she is a hopeless sinner who needs repentance and forgiveness, that's the one who becomes truly saved. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That wouldn't have been enough for that crowd, the triumphal entry. They would have said, I'm not interested in this Lamb of God. I want the Lion of Judah. Give me the Lion of Judah. Well, if you read in the book of Revelation, you find that they're one and the same. We know that from other scriptures as well. They're one and the same, and you can't take one and not the other. They come together. The Lion of Judah, that great powerful one who will one day come back here and make everything right, is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what results in a changed life. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be in heaven, but the one who comes God's way, the way of the cross, the one who says yes to Jesus. But it's got to be to the real Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of truth in your word. We thank you for a picture of a very fickle crowd, a fickle crowd that is identified by the individuals who are in it, just like we are here today. You know us, each one, as an individual. And you know the sincerity or lack of sincerity that we may have. You know that, as you've told us in your word, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, that it's always a good thing to be able to do that, to examine ourselves. Is this my faith or is this my parents' faith? Is this my family's faith? Is this the church's faith? Is this my school's faith? Is this my girlfriend's faith or my boyfriend's faith? Or is it true faith? and the real person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby I acknowledge I do need a crusader champion, but I need one to defeat sin. I need one who's already done that, but I need that sin in my life to be eradicated by confessing that sin, repenting of it, forsaking it, and coming the way of the cross. So I would pray that if there are any who are here among us, that you would give to them the courage, give to them the wisdom to share any questions they have, any assurance they need with someone here that they know knows the Lord Jesus and someone here that they have confidence in, uh, one of the church leaders or a, a friend that they have. But I would pray that nobody would be content to wonder if their salvation were genuine. So I thank you for that now, and I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.